HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today, I'm here with Christopher Cook, an award-winning journalist who has written about food and agriculture and the environment for many publications like the Los Angeles Times, Harper's, The Atlantic, And he's also the author of the book, Diet for a Dead Planet, Big Business and the Coming Food Crisis. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Hi, how are you? Nice to be with you. Yeah. And and where are you calling in from? Are you in San Francisco? I'm in San Francisco, so it's um, still late morning here. Great. And um, probably a lot warmer than here because we're in the midst of a little bit of a freezing cold spell here in New York. Yeah. Sounds brutal. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so you're, you write for lots of different publications. Um, are you writing mostly for one or a few specific ones right now? What are you working on? Yeah. I mean, I, I freelance for different, mostly national publications like The Nation and sometimes Mother Jones and uh, In These Times, which mm. is an excellent, sometimes lesser known publication. Oh. Uh, also a longtime contributor to The Progressive magazine. And um, I write a lot around food issues, food system, food politics, the environment, um, but also issues of labor and social justice and corporate power. Um, politics. Right. We have a lot in common, and I feel probably we could talk about all these issues <laughs> for a very long time, but um, we're going to focus on the Green New Deal today. Um, so I invited you on because you um, recently reported a story for Civil Eats that essentially looked at how the Green New Deal might affect food and agriculture in the U.S. Um, I think 
you know, a great place to start is this might seem kind of basic, but there's so mm. much going on in politics and policy right now, as we all know. It's like you can barely keep up with yeah. the craziness <laughs> of every day, right? So I, you know, I almost just want you to explain like what is the Green New Deal in case someone hasn't yeah. heard of it or it's just like sort of buried in their news feed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> No, absolutely. And I, I think it's a good question, actually, because it's not a uh, it's not fixed in stone and it mm. is a kind of a moving target or moving subject. And so the concept has been around for more than a decade. Um, the Green Party actually is sort of the first uh, political entity that that was uh, putting this forth in the United States. And, and now in uh, the, the past um, few months, uh, Rep- Representative Ocasio-Cortez from New York and um, some other legislators have been promoting this idea um, in Congress. And the concept is to create millions of jobs to expand renewable energy and address the climate crisis and therefore decarbonize the economy, as they say. And in other words, remove, you know, uh, there are many things we can go into, but, you know, remove carbon from the environment, sequester carbon in various ways, uh, and then at the same time radically reduce carbon production by uh, eliminating as much fossil fuel use uh, as possible and production as possible, Mm -hmm. and uh, moving basically everything in our economy to something that is actually more sustainable and that isn't uh, going to completely destroy at least human life as we know it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So, and so the, the, you know, there's obviously a lot involved in all this. Like you said, it's kind of this transformational thing and that is across lots of sectors of the economy. Um, it, I, I think probably the biggest, you know, when, when you talk about climate, we talk about energy, transportation. Um, but, you know, obviously this is a show about food and agriculture. Um, so my first question is just yeah. how much of it, talks about food and agriculture. Yeah. No, and this is actually really important. Very little. Um, mm. in, the, in the conversation about the Green New Deal in the past, say, six months or four months, whatever, um, the food and agriculture aspect hasn't really been talked about much at all. Um, a handful of articles, mine and some others out there, some political um, advocacy groups around the country, excuse me, in the food and farming sector are really starting to raise this issue. Um, so within the resolution, mm-hmm. which is in Congress now, uh, which isn't legislation, if you should remember, it's just a resolution uh, to set maybe a framework and some concepts and get some support and buy-in, there is uh, one very, very short section or a couple of paragraphs about <clears throat> food and agriculture. Mm. And um, at least, you know, I, I feel like they, they said some good things about uh, supporting local and sustainable agriculture and investing in in those kinds of things. And, you know, that's great. And, and supporting smaller-scale family farms, you know, those are all good things. Right. Um, not nearly enough. I mean, I think that it's important for folks to know that the food and agriculture sector is the single biggest uh, contributor to climate change out of every sector, um, energy, transportation, um, Worldwide, the food and agriculture production sector is the top contributor, contributes anywhere from 25 to 30 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's everything from um, 
fossil fuel-based pesticides and chemicals to um, large-scale machinery and all the dust that's kicked up from that, and that's also uh, from the methane, phenomenal amounts of methane right. and hydrogen sulfide that come out of um, giant animal factory farms and long-distance transportation of food. So there's many uh, deforestation, removing forests, which store carbon uh, in order to have more sprawling um, factory farms and other types of commodity farms. So these things are all part of a system that absolutely, it's not about wanting it to change. It absolutely has to change for our future to um, be there. <laughs> right, <laughs> to exist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but so, I mean, if, if it's the single biggest contributor to climate change, why is it only getting this one short section? Yeah, I, I don't have uh, a clear, easy answer for that. I mean, I think that... Um, as long as climate change has been talked about, um, food and agriculture has sort of struggled to get its <laughs> its part in the mm. conversation. And, and I think that that is not unique to the Green New Deal. I think that uh, climate action movements and others, you know, have uh, started to really recognize this much more in recent years, but it's taken a lot of, a lot of pushing. I think that it doesn't necessarily automatically makes sense, you know, that farming would be such a huge producer of, of uh, greenhouse gases. I think that, you know, you look mm. at huge power plants and jet planes and semi-trucks and other things like that, um, and the grid, right? Know, very unsustainable grid and, and gazillions of cars and trucks, those are much more obvious um, emitters than, than a farm, which, you know, we think of as this beautiful, you know, as green, there's... <laughs> right, you think of it as sort of part of nature, not as... Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So that might be part of it, but of course, um, you know, so much of our food is transported in those toxic, uh, unsustainable ways. So um, that's just one piece of the food uh, climate, you know, food print, as many of us are saying now, but, you know, is is you know whether it's um, air trans you know air transport uh, shipping in various ways semi trucks uh, rail you know all those things um, are part of uh, food's um, imprint on the environment because of our food system which is not very local or regionally oriented and which you know, we can talk more about this if you want but you know yeah. it, it's based so much especially in the U S but in other areas as well on producing large-scale, you know, commodities, which then get processed into other foods and therefore get shipped and processed all over the place, um, adding to that uh, climate footprint instead of more local and regional uh, foods that are, you know, diverse and ready to eat. Yeah. So you, do you see, like, local and regional foods as one of the, the biggest kind of um, solutions that is available in terms of changing the food system to be more to have a uh, smaller footprint or smaller eco environmental impact. I see it as a key part. I, mm. I think that you know we can't reduce um, the solution to one element or another, um, but I think that absolutely we have to. You know, scale is one piece. I'm not one to uh, sort of emphasize that scale is everything because I think that um, our economy, capitalist. You know, the system is is fundamentally part of what's what we're dealing with here that we have to look at, mm -hmm. not just size. But I do think that um, when you look at the food system, if you 
look at farmers who are trapped in uh, GMOs and pesticides and get big or get out, which is this concept that's been around for decades um, in the food policy, you know, idea that, you know, either either you own more and more land and farm more and more acres of a single commodity like corn or wheat or soy, or you just get out. Right. And so what we are seeing is uh, 12,000 farmers a year going out of business. And some of that is really because of this idea that you have to get big or get out. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's critical that, you know, we both, um, you know, we create incentives uh, for local and regional food production, but not just that, you know, also organic and regenerative farming practices and, um, yeah, and, and diversified food production mm-hmm. is the other key, you know, another big key. Um, and there are many other, like, farming practices that have to do with soil that we could talk about. But, but I think the basic idea about local and regional production is to not say, well, everything must be within five or ten miles or I'm not going to eat it, because it's just not realistic right. um, for, for so many places <laughs> and for many people. But I think the idea is that, um, you know, if we simultaneously can encourage farmers to diversify food production, produce an array of crops um, for local and regional markets, shift to organic. You know, these are all things that farmers, many farmers would like to do, mm-hmm. but they're not, they're not given the, they're not given the ability to do it. They're not given the time and the resources and support to do it. Right. So in in your reporting on the Green New Deal, um, does the the plan outline ways to help farmers do that? Like, uh, can you give us a sense of um, what they suggest might be a policy approach to helping farmers make those changes? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not in there right now. There's just sort of a, a nod, you know, a, a decent nod to some of these concepts, but mm. and, and you know. We don't know whether that's purposeful. Maybe they didn't want to be boxed in. You know, I don't know um, inside the, the brain trust right. <laughs> how that decision was made. Um, but I do know that there are uh, coalitions and groups around the country that are really starting to put forward ideas. Um, there was a group of uh, agroecology experts and professors about uh, a few weeks or a month ago who put out a really interesting letter, uh, group letter, and I know there are other uh, elements of this that are in the works to um, really uh, emphasize that Congress take on some of these policies around, um, so for instance, uh, have some um, type of uh, public investments or supports for uh, organic farming and transitioning to organic farming. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can give people uh, farmers, you know, some form of support, whether you call it a, a, a subsidy or a, or a support of some other kind or, you know, an investment um, to transition to organic production and diversified production of multiple different types of crops mm-hmm. um, and also uh, provide funding mechanisms to expand local and regional markets for those crops. Um, so whether it's farmers markets or um, you know, getting away from the giant Walmarts of the world and having, uh, which really, you know, do some damage, even though they, they do sell organics, but they, they do some damage by, uh, you know, really um, basically giving farmers and, and producers no leverage in the marketplace, right. no ability to negotiate a fair price for their products is 
the least of what they do. <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, these kinds of, you know, whether you call it incentives or investments or supports for organic, smaller scale, diversified production um, will be key. Uh, people are also talking about um, any form of subsidy or support that farmers get um, needs to also require that there be a set of sustainable practices mm. that are either followed uh, or put in place, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, protecting pollinators right. um, and pollinator habitats or... Like something um, like cover you know, crops, maybe? Yeah. Excuse me? Something right. like cover crops, maybe? like Cover crops, yeah. exactly. Exactly. And lower, less tillage of the soil, not mm. necessarily no-till, but less till of the soil um, and, you know, good crop rotation practices and like you're saying, and um, yeah, so those, and, and, and again, moving away from uh, toxic pesticides and, and chemical fertilizers will be key as well. And, you know, it's important for people to, to know that, you know, right now we spend 13 to $15 billion a year in subsidies and crop insurance that go, goes almost entirely to large-scale commodity producers of, like, again, the corn, soy, wheat, and a few other key crops um, that are primarily used as either animal feed or fuel stocks uh, or for processed foods. And, you know, again, a lot of the problem with this is that it's almost entirely, you know, it's almost entirely GMO-produced and Mm pesticide-based. And so we absolutely have to shift those dollars in a different direction if we're going to have a hope at reducing um, emissions and also sequestering carbon, you know, improving the quality of soil, um, giving giving our farmland soils the ability to store carbon as well as grow healthier food and, and actually use less water. Right. Um, it, so we have to take a quick break, um, but we're going to be back in a minute and we'll keep talking about the Green New Deal. And I want to sort of get into... Um, where this is all headed and and what we can really expect to happen. So we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org slash events. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. It's Todd Shulkin, the host of Inside Julia's Kitchen here on HRN. 
Inside Julia's Kitchen carries on Julia Child's legacy of introducing the brightest lights in the food world to a wider audience, just as Julia did from her home kitchen. Look for Inside Julia's Kitchen wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. We're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Chris Cook. We've been talking about the Green New Deal and how it might impact food and agriculture. Um, so, Chris, before the break, we were talking a lot about um, different mm-hmm. um, aspects of the policy and just also different um, ways that food and agriculture um, systems need to shift in order to address climate change. Um, I'm mm-hmm. curious, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about like what, what's really going to happen? <laughs> like what, <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> and obviously neither of us really know, oh, you know, <laughs> neither of us unfortunately know yeah. a lot about that at this point. But, um, I think, well, one thing you said earlier really interested me, which is that like, this was, this has been a plan that's been in the works for a long time, um, from mm-hmm. the green party. And it kind of like, you know, I didn't know that I, I hadn't heard of it. And so it's got in this renewed, um, push and interest because a, a major political party is now um, going to bat for it, right? The Democrats, or at least a few of them, are, of right? <laughs> Part, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but so you know, it's a House resolution. Um, what does that mean? Like, what what comes next? What's the pathway for it to actually morph into something that would be voted on and and become law? Yeah, yeah. This is by far the less fun part. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not, not to be too uh, much in the pun world, but, you know, where the sausage is made. Right. <laughs> so, um, all right, no more of that. But anyway, um, so there's resolution. There's a resolution in the House uh, sponsored by Ocasio-Cortez and actually um, co-sponsored by, uh, my last count was 67 members of Congress. It's probably higher than that now. Okay. Um, and then in the Senate, um, uh, Senator Markey from Massachusetts uh, has a re- similar resolution there. Um, Senator Merkley from Oregon is uh, talking about putting forth legislation or a resolution. Um, so we'll see what that looks like, or if if it dovetails with this. Um, so it would be non-binding. It would be it wouldn't be legislation, but it would be uh, a step forward. And from the beginning, what I was hearing from um, from the Sunrise Movement and from Ocasio-Cortez when they were starting to uh, push this idea was that um, it's really about getting something ready to go by 2020. And if you don't start now, you won't have it ready by then. I think everybody recognizes that uh, nothing like this is going to pass the Republican Senate. Right. Um, it's hard enough to even get... Um, broader support in the Democratic Party, frankly, uh, and the leadership, which um, I've written a bit about that, and it's quite maddening given that they know um, how dire the climate crisis is. But I wrote a piece for In These Times, which folks can look up, about Nancy Pelosi and other Democratic leaders uh, stifling the Green New Deal by crushing the select committee idea. The original idea was to create a, a select committee to focus entirely on creating a Green New Deal and having uh, hearings and create legislation that would be ready to go by 2020 if we had a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president. And um, so instead, um, 
they basically crushed that movement and uh, recreated a climate uh, committee, climate and energy committee from 2007 that has no legislative authority, no ability mm-hmm. to create legislation. So, um, and they're still dismissing, generally dismissing, um, when I say they, I mean some of the House leadership, like Nancy Pelosi, Stanley right. Hoyer, and the others. Um, it sounds like they're softening their opposition a little bit, maybe, but they're not supporting it, um, which is utterly remarkable. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, I understand they're afraid of being called socialists, but they're going to be called mm. socialists no matter what they do anyway. Right. <laughs> so, um, so I think that, you know, what's, what's promising is that this has gotten as far as it's gotten um, mm. for all the frustrations that folks might have that this has gotten to the point where there is a resolution in Congress that's got, you know, I think close to 70 co-sponsors uh, now and um, has at least, you know, perhaps a chance of passing, I don't know, as a resolution. Um, I don't know what the vote count would look like right now, frankly, and I wouldn't hold my breath <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to see it pass. But the ideas have been put forward uh, very strongly. Um and I think that it's made, you know, it's made climate change um, a, a really major part of the conversation. Uh, the problem, of course, is that that's not nearly enough. I mean, we've been knowing about this and having these conversations for decades, and the climate crisis is only getting worse and more dire to the point where scientists around the world, you know, have concluded that we have 12 to 15 years uh, to have any hope of reversing, or not even reversing, but really slowing this path of destruction and giving ourselves any chance of reversing it in the future. Um, we're, we're pretty much headed toward a, a longer period of irreversible, um, temporarily irreversible climate catastrophe for now. Um, but I think a lot of the idea is you, you can slow this down and put humanity and the planet in a better position. Yeah. Well, and yeah. it's... <laughs> I mean, and meanwhile, it's like, you know, we're talking about this, what's going on in, in the government and, and they're, them trying to squash it with these committees. And, and meanwhile, yeah. there's also, um, you know, um, Republican uh, <laughs> representatives telling the American people that um, Ocasio-Cortez wants to take away their burgers um, right. because, you know, she made a comment that, um, you know, one of the th- small things we need to do to you know, save the planet from these dire consequences is maybe not all eat meat three times a day. And, you know, she even qualified it with, I don't mean everyone should go vegan. Like this is not, (laughs) and it's like a a, a comment that is, that seems to me to be just so uncontroversial. Like, you know, we, we sort of know at this point that the science shows we need to all cut back, like the, the, planet needs mm-hmm. to cut back on meat, cons- you know, meat production and especially the ways that we're, we produce it now. Um, and that's, a, you know, it's like it's still effective yeah. for people in policy to to kind of use that as a talking point and say, like, and, and people that <laughs> people are like responding yeah. to that. I'm like, no, I don't want like I want my burger. It's like, well, you're not going to be able to eat a burger if the world is <laughs> <laughs> like. Exactly. So, I mean, it's just it's so it can be a little maddening, I guess in your reporting, like, do you, do you come across, have you come across things that like ways that you communicate about food and climate that you think are more effective that people respond to? That's a really interesting point. I mean, um, 
I think that, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Some folks are just not going to respond to anything, um, and they're only going to hear the other side and the fear-mongering and fear tactics. Um, you know, I do point to studies that uh, have shown that if you reduce, not even eliminate, but just reduce meat consumption, like in school lunch programs in Oakland, they did a whole study about mm. this, and the kids were completely fine. Uh, they were... Well, maybe not all of them, but you know. <laughs> anyway, they were, they were, you know, Generally. all the surveys, all the response showed they were they were happy with the lunches. The health content was at least as strong as it was before. The school district saved money, they saved water, and they significantly reduced their greenhouse gas emissions, hmm. or their you know their footprint, not you know direct emissions, but their associated emissions by purchasing less meat. Um, you know, I think again the key is. Um, well, you know, the other side is going to call call you a radical socialist no matter what you say. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, again, th- this is reality. This is human reality. And I think that more people get it than don't get it. And, you know, whether it's eliminating one's meat consumption or radically reducing one's meat consumption, and also, you know, about improving it. So for those who... Um, feel that there's no way they're going to get, you know, stop eating meat, you know, eating less and better quality meat that is organic and, and grass-fed or free-range, um, local or regionally produced, yes, it does cost more. I think we need to do something about that uh, through public supports, perhaps, mm-hmm. to encourage more of that. Um, not more meat production, but more of that part of the meat sector. Right. Uh, just being realistic, we're not going to just eliminate all this. Um and understanding that people have their budgets and they're not going to spend more than X amount of dollars, but, you know, could could people be persuaded, you know, well, this is better for for your health. You can still eat meat, mm. um, you know, and I, th- I think the key is this is about our future. I mean, this is about, you know, if you have kids, grandkids, thinking about having kids, whatever it is, or you just happen to care about people other than yourself and your friends, but future generations. Yeah. Um, that's what this is about, you know, and I think that it's, you know, I understand that people have this issue about sort of, you know, quote, the nanny state, you know, or mm-hmm. playing the finger and saying, you know, you can only eat X amount, <laughs> this many ounces of meat, or, you know, nobody's saying that, um, really, and nobody in power is saying that, and they don't even have the power to really do that. Yeah. Uh, they wouldn't, they wouldn't get that through anyway, so there's no worry there. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but it is about saying we have choices to make. You know, these are objective, scientifically shown. These are choices that we have to make, and we all make these in our individual lives, and we set priorities, and we don't get everything we want constantly. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and so I hate to sound like some sort of, um, you know, parent on this, but I do feel like the Republican <laughs> messaging is infantilizing. Yeah. And it really does create this idea that, you know, um, that Americans, you know, are just, all we want is our cake and eat it too. We want our ice cream and we want our, and we don't want anything else. And, you know, as much as there might be fear of losing some of that, I, I don't think that's the case. I think that when you drill down, people understand their choices, their priorities, and it's hard for people to picture that with climate change because most people are not seeing it or necessarily experiencing it or understanding it in in their direct, you know, immediate lives. Um, you know, 
because it's it you know whether it's um, you know but you look at the, the people who are I mean farmers around the country are suffering hugely mm-hmm. <laughs> from the climate crisis um, and that affects everything from their own survival to their communities to food prices uh, you know even food corporations now put in their bottom line and in their risk reports they talk about climate change as a huge risk factor so there's uh, you know, great awareness about this. And I think that the challenge is not just, you know, convincing people that climate change is real and it's here and it's now, but showing showing how that's the case. And, you know, that can sometimes be tricky because, um, you know, climate change may not have created the forest fire, but it created the, the wind tunnels and the extent mm. of the forest fire by uh, the weather patterns and the wind and the trade, you know, wind patterns that basically exacerbated. Right. You know, the same thing with the, the size and the scope and the frequency of hurricanes, the seasonal shifts that don't make headlines that affect crop production, for instance, you know, those kinds of things, not just in the U.S., actually more dramatically in other parts of the world even. Um, so all these things, you know, I think that it's just going to continue to take work to show people the uh, really remarkable levels of, of suffering and costs, financial and human costs um, that are going on in the U.S. and around the world uh, due to climate change. And you're always, unfortunately, going to have the deniers. And I think in every aspect of politics, this is what we're dealing with. You know, we're dealing with um, resistance even within the Democratic Party due to perhaps a set of, like, electoral concerns, but also, frankly, the fossil fuel industry and the money that they provide. And the fact that the Democratic Party reversed itself on banning fossil fuel money in campaigns, um, that all plays a role. And then on the other side of things, um, you've got denialism and how convenient that is to prop up some of those same interests. Um, So it's just about continuing to uh, try to educate and have these conversations and make people aware, um, you know, people are suffering now. Yeah. Yeah. Climate crisis. And yeah, they are suffering. And, and this, all this can feel, I think it can feel really sort of bleak and overwhelming. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, I'm curious, I, I, we have to wrap up and I want to sort of ask you this question, I think, um, as a final point, um, I'm, I'm curious if, you know, you do this kind of reporting all the time. Um, are you optimistic at all that this new, policy push will be effective in sort of reducing the impact of food production on climate change? I don't know about this particular uh, resolution or legislation uh, at the moment. Um, I have to say politically, I'm not sure that I'm super optimistic, but what I am optimistic about is that the ideas and the evidence are getting um, pushed forward more and more centrally in the conversation. I think you'll see that um, you know, in the coming weeks and months, that um, there's going to be more and more nationwide conversation about uh, climate change and the, and the vital importance and urgency of some form of a Green New Deal um, and of the uh, huge importance of the food and agriculture sector and the need to to transform it, not again because people want to transform it, but because we have to. And I guess what's optimistic to me to some extent is the knowledge is there, the, the models for doing this are there, 
there's there's no reason we can't do it if we get the political will and the money behind it to shift the priorities. We already have phenomenal amounts of money pushing us in this deadly direction that we're in right now. And I talk about this extensively in my book, Diet for a Dead Planet, if people want to learn more about the, the history behind all this and the money and the power behind all this. But but we can shift, you know, shift those resources. And if we don't win nationally, you know, these can become ideas that can continue to be put forth on state and local levels as they already are. So that's hopeful as well. Right. Absolutely. Um, thank you, Chris, so much for, for being here and for all of your insights. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Sure. And um, just before we go, um, if people want to follow your work um, online, where can they find you? Yeah, thank you. So they can go to my website, which is uh, com. <laughs> so it's www.christopherdcook.com. And my book, again, is Diet for a Dead Planet. It's been out for a while, but it's still uh, sadly relevant and uh, fairly timely, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and then articles in Civil Eats and The Nation and In These Times and places like that. Great. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.